You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, David. Hey, Bob. How's it going? Can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter, and this is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are David Sachs, a co-host of a podcast of your own, the All In Podcast, also a noted Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneur and venture capitalist. You started Yammer, which did very well. You were part of the storied PayPal mafia back in the day, along with people like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. In fact, uh, I think in the Times, I recently saw you identified as uh, still a close associate of uh, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. Um, Now, one thing that I think distinguishes you from a lot of uh, Silicon Valley figures is your interest in talking about foreign policy. I don't hear a lot of that from, well, from, you know, entrepreneurs and corporate people generally. Uh, and I suspect um, that your your views distinguish you in some cases, even from those few people in those communities who do speak about foreign policy. I'm thinking particularly yeah. about Ukraine. You You have strongly felt views about Ukraine that you've expressed that I think it's safe to say are not entirely mainstream. Is that fair? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think they're mainstream within the community that's called realism and restraint, but since that community is sort of, you know, an outlier to, you know, the foreign policy establishment, then yes, I agree with your characterization. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about that, and we may get into other things, Silicon Valley-related uh, things of various kinds. Uh, but first of all, why don't you elaborate a little on what your views on Ukraine are? Well, I mean, I I appreciate your work on the subject. Um, you know, I've read all of your your blogs about it. Um, two in particular, I thought were really important and helped shape my thinking. One was, I think it was in February when you talked about why the Biden administration did nothing to negotiate to avoid this catastrophe. I mean, I think that was, you know, right on the money. I don't think the, I think this war was avoidable. I think it was, um, if not predictable is certainly predicted by many foreign policy scholars. I think that makes it preventable if, if you know something's going to happen. So, um, yeah, and I think it was easily preventable, actually. So, uh, you know, I appreciate your post on the subject. And then you had one going back to January, I think, that was fairly prescient in a way, laying out the history of the subject, um, talking about the series of actions that the United States has taken over the years that from the Russian point of view were provocative. Um, that's not to say that, you know, we quote unquote provoked the war, but mm-hmm. we took actions that from their point of view were highly provocative and um, use this term cognitive empathy, um, which uh, I'm not sure I'd heard of that before, but I think the basic idea is seeing the world from the other guy's point of view, you know, putting yourself in their shoes just for a second, which seems to me the basis of diplomacy. And we completely failed to do that. And I think as a result, we missed an opportunity to prevent this this war. Well, as you might imagine, I agree with much of what you said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I know. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of violent agreement here. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, cognitive empathy, you're right. It is just perspective taking. It's a very uh, simple concept in principle. Uh, the word cognitive is used to modify empathy just to distinguish it from the kind of like feel your pain kind of empathy 
because it's emphatically not meant to imply necessarily sympathizing with, say, Vladimir Putin, but just understanding uh, his perspective, which in principle should make sense in any kind of game you're, you're in, non-zero-sum, zero-sum, friend, enemy, frenemy. Um, but, it's, it, but it's actually kind of hard to do, I think. And in any event, there seems to be a fair amount of resistance to it, in part because people think you do want to empathize and feel their pain and apologize for their actions. And that's not necessarily implied at all. Um, so yeah. I don't, you know, I don't really see it as, as empathy per se. I don't, it's not about feelings. It's more about just understanding what they perceive as their vital interests um, so that you can engage in a realistic negotiation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't really care so much about their feelings, but I want to understand their point of view. Um, and I think we, you know, we, we, there were many people in the West who understood it prior to February 24th. You know, once the invasion happened, we all had to pretend like we didn't know about all the warnings that have been made about NATO expansion since the 1990s. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, probably the, you know, I think there's three big lies about this whole Ukraine war. Number one is that it has nothing to do with NATO expansion. And the word nothing, literally, Michael McFaul put that in all caps, that this war has nothing to do with NATO expansion. That's lie number one. I think line number two is the idea that the U.S. supports a doctrine that any country is completely free to join whatever military alliance it wants to join. We do not believe in that doctrine. We've never espoused that doctrine. We do not practice that doctrine. And I think we can drill into these things. And then the third thing is just that, you know, this war was was not preventable, that there was nothing we could have done to prevent it. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, that sort of goes back to the kind of the Putin madman theory that Putin just woke up on February 24th and went nuts. And there's nothing we could have done because it was the crazy action of a madman. There was nothing we could have done to predict it or prevent it. Um, I think all three of these things are just manifestly untrue. And I, you know, I think that if you spend any time at all looking at the subject and reading the history of it or contemporaneous media accounts, it is just obvious. You know, I don't even think this is a close one. And so, you know, it really brings up like a deeper level to the whole. Ukraine is, you know, one is just sort of the policy and how did we get here? The other is just the foreign policy establishment that we have and the media coverage of it, that if it's so easy to figure out that these are lies, you know, why, why is it that we have this foreign policy establishment that's so deeply immersed in them and, and just cannot tell the truth about what's happening? Um, so there's a couple of layers that you, you know, as you sort of delve into this, that you get into. Mm -hmm. uh, but let me pause there and see what you want to drill into. Well, I would say, I mean, you know, I'm not sure we could have uh, realistically prevented it as of, uh, prevented the war as of, say, mid-February. But I, I'm pretty sure we weren't trying very hard. In fact, people yeah. from the administration have said NATO was not on the table. The, the, the idea of, of actually guaranteeing no expansion of NATO uh, into Ukraine was something we chose not to put on the table. And uh, I just think if you don't try that, you're not trying very hard. I kind of feel like the further back yeah. in time you go, the, the, the more confident I am that a wise American policy from that point on would have prevented the war. You know, oh, because yeah. as you said, people are warning back in the 90s. I mean, 2008 is a big year when, when uh, William Burns, now head of the CIA, who was an ambassador to, uh, right. to Russia, sends both an email to Condi Rice, who is secretary of state, and a memo more broadly that was titled 
Net means net. It was right. about Ukraine, you know. And, and right. he made the point, it, it isn't just Putin. Everyone in the Russian national security establishment considers Ukraine a red line. Now, again, right. well, let's let, 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 so let's go back to this. OK, so let's start in the, in the 1990s when the idea of NATO expansion starts. Right. So you've got, you know, folks like George Kennan warning about it. Um, William Perry, who's Brooklyn's defense secretary, almost resigns in protest over it. Um, you know, you've got many people raising the issue. This is provocative towards Russia. Then fast forward to 2008. Like you said, you got the Bill Burns memo where he says that this is a red line for the entire Russian elite, not just Putin. You have, you know, Gor uh, Gorbachev was against it. He basically, you know, he has, there's um, a video you can watch on YouTube of him speaking before the U.S. Congress where he says you can't humiliate a country this way. Um, Yeltsin was against it. So the whole Russian elite was against it. Bill Burns made that point. Um, you know, Kissinger made this point. Um, I mean, there's a long litany. Um, Robert Gates, you know, Obama's uh, mm -hmm. defense secretary, made the point that, um, that trying to bring Ukraine into NATO was, quote, I'm quoting from memory here, truly overreaching and a failure to recognize Russia's own vital interests. Mm. So you have all these people warning about it, you know, and then, of course, you have the Russians' own statements about this, going back to 2008, in which they clearly said this was a red line for them. Um, and the U.S. just either treated all these statements as either crazy or a bluff. We just kind of ignored them altogether. And then, of course, once the war begins, we sort of memory hold all these warnings and just acted as if this war came out of nowhere and there was nothing we could have done to avoid it. Well, yeah, and I think one reason, I mean, let me pause and say well, a couple of things. First of all, as soon as you say NATO mattered, people come up with quotes of Putin's that seem to say something else mattered. Well, first of all, a lot of things mattered and people say a lot of things about their own motivations, depending on the circumstance. And I want to emphasize that in my mind, the NATO issue isn't just an issue of national security from Russia's point of view, although I think it is that. And certainly we would not permit the equivalent in our neighborhood of what NATO expansion represents to them. But I think there's also a big issue of just respect from their point of view. Mm -hmm. It just seems to them <clears throat> that, you know, ever since the 90s, certainly since the early aughts, we've been kind of... Uh, treating them with, with uh, something like contempt. There was a leaked, uh, well, it wasn't leaked. There, there was a, a reporter who happened to be sitting in Cafe Milano recently in Washington when the Russian ambassador of the U.S. was talking to this uh, uh, guy whose name I can't pronounce, but famous American kind of uh, emissary to Afghanistan. And, and so this reporter kind of surreptitiously recorded what was said. And the, 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 the ambassador uh, the Russian ambassador used the word respect three times in saying like, in asking like, why can't you give us any respect? And I think, you know, uh, that's a big deal. And I look, Putin famously has a chip on his shoulder, you know, and, and it's like, uh, you need to understand what the peculiarities are of the people you're dealing with. I mean, I think any, any country cares about respect, any leader cares. I suspect that Putin especially cares. And, you know, being an autocrat, he identifies with Russia especially closely and sees disrespect toward Russia as disrespect toward him and so on. Um, but I think just quickly, one more thing is that one reason our views are not <laughs> widely accepted is that a lot of the stuff I've just been saying 
will be taken as like excusing the invasion or something. And I don't I don't mean right. it that way. An invasion is an invasion. It's a violation of international law. But, you know, if if like like if I can behave, if there's two ways I can behave toward my neighbor, one of them I know will uh, lead him to break the law and one won't, I'll go with the second one. You know, if it's no right. if, 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 it, if it's easy enough to do, he's he's still the one who should go to jail. But uh, but, you know, the, the, the this conflation with kind of a, 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 this confa- conflation of explaining why this happened with excusing Putin, which I don't right. mean to do, really inhibits just honest reflection on American policy. And if we can't ever honestly reflect on our mistakes, you know, the policy is never going to get any better. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons why we had to kind of memory hole all these warnings of what would happen if we cross Russia's red line on on this. I think one of them, like you said, is there's a legitimate reason and kind of an illegitimate reason. The legitimate reason is we don't want to be seen as justifying or providing an excuse or rationale for his behavior, which is immoral. It's illegal, criminal. um, It's it's brutal. He's a thug. I mean, you can kind of go down the list. So I think that's the legitimate reason. But I also think there's another reason why we have to kind of pretend like we didn't know what was going to happen. And that is because of the sheer diplomatic incompetence of the administration. I mean, if you go back last year, you know, Biden inherited this problem really in his first month in office. Uh, Putin started amassing troops on the Ukrainian border back in January last year. Remember, the troops were sitting there for over a year before they invaded. I mean, this was like a slow motion invasion. Putin wanted to negotiate. They had this summit on June 16th last year. Putin, I think, was very direct about their issue here, as they always have been. And what did the administration do after that? They brought Zelensky to the White House on September 1st, and they then issued this 10-year charter agreement between the U.S. and Ukraine on November 10th. This was a real finger in the eye to the Russians. So the Russians are already putting the West on notice that you are basically in the process of crossing a red line that we've been really yelling up, we've been screaming, you know, up and jumping up and down, screaming about since 2008. And not only do we not heed that warning, but we actually take the further step of bringing Zelensky to the White House for this sort of photo op with Biden. And then they do this 10-year charter agreement. That's when the Russians hit the roof. You know, that's what then precipitated this ultimatum they made in December. And then like you, and then that started the the round of negotiations in January between Lavrov and Blinken. And then, you know, Blinken came out with these statements that left absolutely no wiggle room as a diplomat. He said that uh, there has been no change and there will be no change. NATO's door is open and will remain open. So there was absolutely no willingness on the part of the administration to engage in any diplomacy. And in fact, it was worse than that, which is that in the midst of this already being a crisis with the Russian troops on the border, they push forward with this, you know, this ten-year uh, charter agreement. And I think yeah. some of, some of the commentators have mentioned that that was that was a fatal mistake. So I think that that was just diplomatic incompetence. I mean, unless, unless you know, there are people who have the theory that this was done deliberately to provoke the Russians into some sort of proxy. Why, personally, of, of the school of thought that uh, never attribute to malice what. You can attribute to uh, stupidity. What's it? Uh, Hanlon's razor or something. Yeah. Um, 
So, I mean, I tend to think this was just incompetence on the part of the administration. And um, so, so now, you know, we have to kind of pretend that any notice that we had that, that this might be the result, we have to kind of pretend like we didn't know that. Yeah, I think there were also, um, I think kind of the domestic politics and the domestic political cues shaped the administration's behavior. I mean, when they were, you know, before the invasion, when we were getting the allies together and we were uh, telling them how severe the sanctions were going to be and there was unity, they were getting standing ovations from the foreign policy community. And I remember thinking, but like, that's all sticks. Sticks are valuable. You should, threats can be very valuable, but, it, but do we have like an off ramp? Do, are we offering him a way out that is that is likely to seem appealing to him? And we never did, but Blinken kept getting standing ovations. And, you know, foreign policy is funny because most Americans, by and large, don't care about it unless Americans are coming home in body bags. And so you get, you know, the, the influence on policy comes from like kind of very, uh, you know, specific narrow interest lobbies and kind of just the blob, the foreign policy community, the talking heads on MSNBC, CNN and so on. And I think all of that was pushing uh, Blinken in that direction. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I, well, I, he was, he was, I mean, wasn't he part of the same sort of cabal that was involved back when Biden was vice president and had Ukraine in his portfolio back in mm -hmm. 2014? I mean, mm -hmm. it's the same group of folks. Um, Lincoln and Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland. I mean, these were the folks who yeah. pushed to help back the um, the you know the the overthrow of the Yanukovych government in 2014, and then that precipitated a whole series of events. So it seems to me that this administration's been deeply invested in this policy going back to 2014. And I think you're right; the American people don't pay that much attention to it unless um, we end up in a, in a war. Um, but uh, I think they do pay attention to the repercussions of it. So the uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we have increased inflation and in energy and food prices, I think, because the war is contributing to that. I, I don't think it, the inflation started with that, but I do think it's exacerbating. And I do think the Amer American people notice that and they will hold the Biden administration mm -hmm. accountable for it. So I do think that at the end of the day, Biden will be held accountable for this policy. Yeah. And just one quick word about 2014. I mean, you know, I, I generally I, I'm happy to call that a revolution, not a coup, whatever. Uh, I mean, it's definitely a non-democratic transfer of power that the U.S. seems to have been in favor of. But but I can I can accept that that it was uh, our support for it was in some ways well intentioned. Even the behind the scenes orchestration of who the successor uh, leader would be. Um, you know, we, we, democracies, you know, whatever, that's fine. But, but again, it gets back to this issue of cognitive empathy. You always need to at least go through the process of understanding how it's going to look from the other side. And, right. and, and pretty much anybody in Putin's shoes is going to look at that and not interpret it charitably and look at it as an attempt to overthrow a government that was friendly to you. And, Right, and we would look at it the same way. So um, now, on right, exactly, and and we have throughout our history um, greatly resisted any attempt by foreign powers to create client regimes in the Western Hemisphere. Right. I mean, that's the Monroe Doctrine, and I mean, this is why to go back to kind of big lie number two, this idea that we believe as a country that any any other nation is free to join whatever military alliance they want. That is not something. We believe the Monroe Doctrine 
since you know the earliest days of our country, expressly prohibits mm-hmm. the nations of the Western Hemisphere from joining any other military alliance. And we have enforced that. If you go back to, I was reading some history about this, 1867, the, uh, the Emperor Maximilian was installed in Mexico by Napoleon III. We basically ran him out of there. And the only reason he was installed is because Lincoln was distracted by the Civil War, didn't want to risk the French coming in on the Confederate side. And so when Napoleon III installed Maximilian, who was sort of this um, Austrian archduke, we had to table the issue. But once the war was over, you know, we basically threatened Vienna with war if they came to, to basically help Maximilian out. We helped the Mexicans throw him out. And he was, I think, captured, court-martialed, and shot. Uh, that was 1867. You can go to 1917, the um, Zerman telegram, World War I, where it was... Uh, there's a, a telegram intercepted by the foreign minister of Germany, Wilhelmine well, Germany, trying to recruit Mexico into a military alliance against the U.S. That prompted enormous outrage in the U.S. And the next month, we were in the war on the Allied side. And then, of course, the you know sort of biggest, best example was in 1962. We were willing to risk thermonuclear war to prevent Cuba from joining a military alliance with the Soviet Union. So. We certainly understand the concept that um, when a nation joins a military alliance, it creates externalities. It's not, you know, uh, global international security, the balance of power is a zero-sum game. And, and if a nation in our hemisphere, a neighbor, Mexico, Cuba, were to join some other foreign, some other great powers, military alliance, that would have huge consequences for our own security. We would not sleep as well at night with their weapons, their missiles pointing at our heads with, you know, a a much quicker delivery time. So we have always understood this. And even today, even now, our government is up in arms over the Solomon Islands joining a military pact with China, even though that nation is 3,000, it is thousands of miles away from us. I think it's 3,000 miles off the coast of Australia. So even today, right now, we do not espouse or practice the doctrine that any nation is sovereign with respect to which military alliance they join. And yet when it comes to this issue of Ukraine, we just adamantly refuse to see the Russian point of view on this, that they, that they could feel like their security could be threatened by the U.S. putting soldiers, weapons, and bases directly on Ukrainian soil on their border. And I just, you know, I, I don't understand. And, and it's not like they didn't tell us, you know, they have been, again, jumping up and down, telling us this is, you use the word respect. I think, you know, I, I, I don't think we need to sort of personalize the issue or sort of, you know, um, treat it like it's sort of um, a schoolyard brawl or something. I think that they express concerns about their security interests. And you you listen to pretty much any speech Putin has given. He talks about the um, the risk created to their security by having, in particular, American missiles. He seems very concerned about mm-hmm. American missile systems, American missile batteries being directly on his border with the ability to strike Moscow within five minutes. I mean, right. that's is the crux of his security concern. Now, I'm sure that there are other issues, but he's been saying this for a long time. I mean... When he talks, it's all about the sort of this balance of power logic. And, you know, he says, listen, we know we're not as powerful as you. 
but we still have security interests that matter. And by the way, we have these nuclear weapons and we don't want to be put in a position where we're existentially threatened and might have to use nuclear weapons. I mean, that that seems to be the... He's used a lot of that language before. And um, so we're we're creating a very dangerous situation here. Um, let me stop there because I've been going on for a while. But um, but 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 it's amazing to me that we cannot understand the Russian point of view on it. And I wouldn't just call it Putin's point of view because it's again that per Bill Burns, the entire Russian elite understands the threat to their security is not just Putin. So let's not personalize mm-hmm. and make it about Putin. But it seems like we can't seem to understand their security interest when we've understood that security interest, the idea of a neighboring nation being part of some foreign great powers military alliance. That is something we've understood for hundreds of years. Well, it's partly we don't consider ourselves threatening. We think we mean only good when we don't plan to invade Russia, right? Right. But as a, you know, this has a long history. You know, there's something in political science called uh, the security dilemma, which is that, you know, when a nation uh, does something that it considers defensive, like we're saying we need to do this NATO thing, you know, it has defensive value to us in some sense or has something other than offensive intent. It often is the case that the other side can legitimately view that as offensive in either intent or at least potential. Like even if they don't think we plan to invade them now, they still would rather not have these uh, missiles that are already in Poland and that uh, we say are, 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 you know, an anti-missile defense aimed at Iran, right. but for all they know, have missiles in them that are that, that could reach Moscow. The the um, no, you're right. I mean, Putin's made this point about the missile systems that he said, look, the same missile systems that provide a shield can also be used for offensive capability. Sure. Um, those missile batteries can hit, you know, Moscow. So, um, yeah, he's made this point. It is the security dilemma. Um, and this this started World War One. Some would argue the, the the very asymmetry of perceptions. Everybody thought what they were doing was defensive, but it was perceived as offensive by the other side, and right. that's what led to the escalation. Sorry, go ahead. Right? No, you know you're right. And I mean, one of the you know paradoxes is that the same people who insist that look, uh, what we're doing is purely defensive. We have no offensive intentions here. That is just wrong. How could he think that way? In the very next breath, they're talking about regime change in Moscow. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, wait, what? Uh, you know, you've, and so, you know, this idea that the Russians can't be threatened, listen, even if we had never breathed a word about regime change, the security dilemma would dictate that they're going to be paranoid. And, you know, Russia does have a strain of paranoia in their thinking going back historically. So even if we had never said a word about regime change, but, we, you know, our our policy elite here has talked about regime change openly many times. The president, uh, in a in a closing flourish of a speech, as we all know, <laughs> right. said Putin, you know, basically has to go. Uh, right. So, that, so and, then, and then and then after saying that, they're like, "Well, why are you being so paranoid about our intentions?" Well, we're stating our intentions. You know, we we want regime change. Um, you know, it may not be our official policy, but we've had to walk back that it's not our official policy. So let me ask you, what is your kind of main motivating concern? In other words, what is it about the consequences of this kind of policy or maybe this particular manifestation of the policy that worries you the most, that leads you to speak out, even though it's like really not part of your job description and I assume gets you in a certain amount of trouble? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think that, um, I mean, I think it's a hugely important issue in a bunch of different ways. Um, one is, I mean, just looking at it economically, which isn't necessarily the most important way, but it's really important. I think this war is creating a huge overhang on the economy, and I'm not sure we're going to get out of the current economic mess that we're in without having some sort of successful resolution of this war. And when you have the policy establishment, foreign policy establishment, basically saying that there is no compromise possible here, then I don't know how you're going to get out of it. You know, um, So that's, that's a big piece of it, is even if I only cared about the economy as an investor, I would still have an interest in speaking out about this. But the other piece of it is just that... Um, you know, it's just a very dangerous situation for American security. And now we're, we're not talking as much about the risk of nuclear escalation right now for the simple reason that Russia is doing much better uh, through conventional arms. I mean, they basically now won this uh, Donbass region. But a couple of months ago, we were talking about the real risk of a nuclear escalation. And that is a paradox of this war is that to the extent the Russians can't protect what they see as their vital interests, you know, that they see as existential through conventional means, there is the additional risk that they might escalate to some sort of nuclear response. And so we're kind of caught in this conundrum where um, it's kind of a, a, a lose-lose type of situation. So I'm not now as concerned about the nuclear escalation scenario as I was, say, a couple of months ago, but um, it's still out there. And to the extent that we dislodge the Russians from the dis, the Donbass through, I guess, the forty billion that we have appropriated that I guess is is on its way to the Ukrainians. If they dislodge the the Russians from the Donbass, then I think we could be back to that situation. And keep in mind, I mean, the Ukrainians they're not merely trying to get back to the February, um, you know, the February twenty twenty two borders. They're trying to get back to the February two thousand fourteen borders. I mean, they believe that Crimea is theirs. They want to take that back. Right. Um, so. You know, if they're successful at that, um, I mean, I don't necessarily think they will be, but let's just contemplate for a second. If they were successful at that, you're talking about the Russians losing the home of their Black Sea fleet. I just, you know, would they see that as an existential threat? I would think so. And, mm. you know, those are the types of scenarios where you could, you know, see uh, nuclear escalation. So I just, you know, I can't imagine a more important issue than that to be speaking out about. And and look, I wouldn't speak out about it if I thought that there were enough other people doing it. But it's just amazing to me how there is this absolute consensus, you know, among the foreign policy establishment, among um, the, the major media. You know, there's very little difference between, you know, MSNBC and Fox News on this issue, with, you know, maybe the, with the exception of, of Tucker Carlson. Um, but the media is pretty much singing from the same hymnal as um as the foreign policy establishment so you know i do think it creates a need for for people to to speak out and you know one of the amazing things about the you know about this sort of consensus that the sort of artificial consensus that we have is that the track record of the people who have argued for this ukraine policy is so bad it's just so bad i mean you know, in my business, in the investment business, the most important thing is track record, right? That's the first thing that people are going to look at in deciding whether they should listen to you or invest with you is what is your track record? Mm -hmm. What is the track record of the people who are pushing for the Supreme policy? I mean, they're like 0 for 7 in post 
Cold War wars. I mean, we, so you don't think Iraq, Libya, and Syria worked out <laughs> optimally? But what, what, exactly. What more would you want? And any, right. you know, exactly. Uh, so their, their track record is so bad. And then, of course, the people who got all these wars right, like John Mearsheimer, they're like demonized. They're like a pariah. And, and that's something I just can't understand. Is you know, Mearsheimer was right about Iraq. He was right about Afghanistan. He was right about, I mean, you name it. I mean, every single one of these conflicts, you know, all of our Middle East interventions, he was right about the failure of constructive engagement, that policy towards China. He was right about what would happen in Ukraine back in 2014. So you would think, I mean, if this guy was in the investment business, he would be treated as like a Warren Buffett. You know, <laughs> he has predicted everything correctly, but you know, but how is he treated in the foreign policy establishment again mm -hmm. as some sort of pariah? Like they'll nitpick some little detail he got wrong when you know he got the gist of it right. And so this is what concerns me as well, is just that the foreign policy elite is just such a closed community of people who keep getting these decisions wrong. And you know, even if Ukraine works out okay, even if we somehow you know, reach some sort of uh, acceptable diplomatic exit, I still think we have this problem of a foreign policy elite that keeps getting everything wrong. And that is just disastrous for American security. No, I agree. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, it's distressing uh, from, from my point of view. <laughs> the, the, uh, and with Mearsheimer, I mean, leave aside the investor metaphor. I mean, he's a social scientist. One thing that almost never happens in the social sciences is that someone makes has a, a hypothesis that's testable in the real world. <laughs> it's an actual prediction about the future, and right. he keeps getting it right. And they say, "Well, this is too much. We're 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 going right. to ostracize you." Um, right. And this is the thing that I that I look at is you know when I see somebody making predictions, like you said, what's it the was it Karl Popper said that that's the value of a theory is whether yeah, it's testable, testable or not. And so his theory keeps getting tested, more or less keeps getting proven correct. So that's what I look for is, you know, when I look at that, I'm like, okay, this guy has a mental model of the world that works. It makes sense. So yeah. why isn't it being wide, more widely adopted? And I mean, the reasons I think are, it's some combination of ideological or um, special interests. I mean, I think the policy establishment likes having this full employment program of having clients all over the world. I mean, that's, I guess, um, Steve Walt's theory, um, you know, sometime collaborator of, of Mearsheimer. So, I mean, it's the, the, the thinking is very entrenched and that's um, as concerning to me as what, you know, the specifics of what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about the lay of the land in Silicon Valley. I mean, I, as I said early on, I suspect you don't feel like you have a lot of company in Silicon Valley. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe you feel there are a lot of people who disagree with you and aren't speaking out. You, you would know better than I. Do you, do you feel there are many kindred spirits out there? Not really, not on, not on the foreign policy issue. And I think it's just because, now look, I think I'm making some progress. You know, I do kind of speak to this issue on our all-in pod. I mean, it's a variety show. We cover a lot of issues. I don't get to go into the issue with nearly as much depth as we're discussing it right now. But, you know, since before the war started, I was saying that we should take this issue of NATO uh, expansion off the table to try mm -hmm. and avert a war. And um, and I've been kind of commenting on it since then. So I, I do feel like based on things like the comments section that I'm making some headway, you know, um, people are getting exposed to ideas that they can't get 
any other way. But but look, I mean, by and large, do are my views um, or sentiments widely shared in Silicon Valley? No, and I think it's just because of this dynamic we're talking about, where um, you know, unless you make an effort to do your homework to understand, you know, uh, an alternate point of view on this issue, unless you're familiar with the IR theory of realism, or maybe, you know, if you're familiar with the work of like, you know, if you're, you know, the anti-war left like Noam Chomsky, or, you know, maybe if you understand like the paleoconservative strain of Republican thinking, like, you know, sort of the Pat Buchanan strain, you kind of have to understand at least one of those schools of thought to even, I think, be exposed to some of these ideas. Because otherwise, the default is you're just going to get your information from the mainstream media, and there's just not really that much difference, um, you know, between the Republicans and the Democrats on this issue. Yeah. I mean, one reason I'm disappointed in the, in the kind of shortage of entrepreneurs and CEOs who seem even privately uh, to, to agree with you on things like this is, I would expect that capitalism would in principle want to make the world safe for itself. In other words, you'd like a stable global platform for commerce, if nothing else, right? I, I mean... And uh, so you'd be, all other things being equal, you'd be against unnecessary wars. And now you would be in favor of the so-called rules-based order, but you'd be really in favor of it. Not, not just the kind of, um, the version of it that, you know, the foreign policy establishment tends to favor, which is in other words, other countries obey the rules. They don't get to invade countries, but we do. I would right. think that if you wanted uh, the world to be just this stable place, you would say, hey, how, how about we really try to cultivate uh, these norms and, and laws that just make invading countries a thing of the past? But that's going to mean that we abide by the rules. It's going to mean we don't invade Iraq and do things like that. Um, I would think in principle, this view of the world could have appeal to capitalists. But I must be wrong because there's not a lot of money behind it. Well, I think that, I mean, look, I think capitalists care about making money. And so, uh, and I, I don't think very many of them were making money in either Russia or Ukraine. So I, you know, I don't, <laughs> uh, it's not like China. We can go, we right. can talk about China in a minute. I think, you know, the last constructive engagers uh, in the United States are probably in Silicon Valley because for the reason you're saying they would like to continue making money there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, look, I think the reason why um, folks in Silicon Valley have this view is just because they kind of think history, the history of this conflict began on February 24th. I mean, they just basically buy into the narrative that the press has kind of told us, which is that Putin woke up on February 24th and just kind of went nuts and decided to invade another country because of his dreams of conquest and restoring a greater Russia. They don't know the prehistory and there's no, who's doing the educating about the prehistory of the conflict. They don't know the role that the Bucharest Declaration played in 2008 or what happened in 2014 with kind of the, you know, Newland back, you know, coup or whatever you want to call it, um, uprising. Um, so I just think they're not like aware of that prehistory. And, and you know, I, now I think you can get at this point, most people in Silicon Valley to admit that the U.S. interventions in the Middle East, that Iraq, Afghanistan, maybe even Syria and Libya, I think you can get them to except that those were incredibly misguided. We were basically a foreign invader um, going up against nationalism. But I think in this context, they just see Russia as the foreign invader who's up against Ukrainian nationalism. They don't, and, and, and there is truth to that, right? I mean, there is truth to that. I mean, at the end of the day, Russia did invade. 
And so I think that's kind of where it begins and ends for most people. And they just don't understand the complexity of, you know, how we could have avoided. You know, I don't, I don't use um, quite the Mearsheimer language about, you know, he uses the language of who caused this and whose mm-hmm. fault is it. Um, th- those are kind of, I understand why he's saying it. I, I think those are kind of loaded terms. What I just say is I think this war was predictable. I think it was preventable. I think it was easily preventable, if you want to be honest about it. I try not to ascribe, you know, use this language that, you know, it's our fault. Because I think people just can't, right. uh, you know, they, they, they can't um, they can't see past the fact that, look, Putin ordered the invasion. Of course, it's his fault. Right. Um, it's like there are different kinds of blame. We, we, we are maybe to blame for bad policy. Uh, he is to blame for violating international law. Those are different things. You can still complain about his violation while admitting that, uh, you know, you made mistakes. But I don't use the word blame. All I say is our policies made invasion more likely, and they did so predictably and needlessly. I can't say for sure invasion never would have happened, even if our policies right. had been wise, but we definitely, uh, I think, increased the chances. Right. And, 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 and the thing is that, you know, again, I think one of the stories that the foreign policy establishment says, I mean, one of their most repeated claims is that the Russian concern about NATO is just a pretext for the, the invasion. But it seems to me, I mean, let's, let's just examine this idea for a second that it's a pretext. How do they know that? I mean, they never took the issue off the table. See, if they took the issue off the table and the Russians invaded anyway, then you could say, oh, that was clearly a pretext. But we never took it off the table. In fact, we did the opposite. We stubbornly refused to even consider the issue. In fact, like we talked about with the charter agreement, we poked the Russians in the eye on this. We kept pushing and pushing on this issue. So, you know, I, I think that I don't know how we kind of, I don't know how our diplomats earned the right to say that this is clearly just a pretext of the Russians. Um, and if it is a pretext, I mean, it's certainly an elaborate pretext, which they have been papering, you know, putting in the paper trail, so to speak, since 2008. I mean, normally when you think about a pretext, you think about some excuse that somebody invents after the fact to uh, justify some bad behavior. I mean, they've been saying this since 2008. I mean, it's certainly a very elaborate paper trail that they must have been thinking back in 2008, okay, let's start saying this. So then we invade in 14 years. We're going to have a great pretext for that invasion. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Well, I think, um, uh, you know, Putin gave a speech at the Munich conference, which I think may even have been as early as 2007. Yeah. Before we let, before we issued the invitation to Ukraine and, and so on, it was, it was totally clear. And, and it pointed out, look, the U.S. is the leading violator of international law. At that point, that was not a hypocritical thing for him to say because he hadn't, right. he hadn't done Georgia. He hadn't fooled around in any of these countries. And, uh, and he was right. I mean, we had, we, we had uh, committed transporter aggression. And he talked about NATO expansion. He laid it all out. And then in 2008, uh, we kind of said, screw you, buddy. Um, the, uh, so... Yeah, it was. I mean, it's it, it's um, the the uh, sort of obtuseness of our side was unbelievable. I mean, even you know, if you watch the video of the speech, um, the reaction. You know, you've got McCain and Lieberman. You know, like um, sort of the American proconsuls of 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 you know war. They're sitting in the front row, and as Putin is is laying this these arguments out, they're like jibing each other and kind of elbowing each other and like laughing and pointing. I mean, it was like, like you know, what a clown you mean? Or, yeah, or, like, exactly. Like, yeah. Okay. But he has nuclear weapons. So you have to yeah. take this a little seriously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it was, um, yeah, it's not very diplomatic. I mean, I would have thought that we would just be 
more careful. Um, it was just careless, I think. And then in 2008, tacking on that Bucharest Declaration, I mean, even I think fans of the idea of bringing Ukraine into NATO or having you know a deeper Western relationship with Ukraine can look back, like Neil Ferguson said, listen, this was a foolish mistake because we declared our intent to bring them in, but we didn't actually do anything about it, not for a long time. And so therefore we kind of made them sitting ducks. So mm -hmm. even if your goal was to do that, it didn't make sense to, to announce it. And of course it wasn't even announced during that NATO meeting. I think, I believe it was tacked on at the end as a statement that George, the George W. Bush administration, um, you know, uh, sort of issued at the very end of the of the NATO meeting because he knew that the Germans and I think the French were against right. it. I think I think Merkel said at that at that point that Putin would regard that as a declaration of war. Um, so that you know the Germans were very much against it. The Europeans were against it, and uh, but George W. Bush went ahead anyway. Another brilliant foreign policy move by yeah, they were against the, the Iraq Bush. invasion too, and um. <laughs> The uh, so let me ask you uh, a, another question about kind of Silicon Valley opinion. So one reason I worry so much about well, there are several reasons to worry about Ukraine. I think there's the the escalation, regional war, nuclear war, but even longer term, what worries me about like enduringly bitter relations with Russia and possibly with China, given where we're headed, is that. It seems to me that there are a growing number of kind of international non-zero-sum problems that nations face that they can uh, best solve or maybe only solve through cooperation. I mean, kind of famously climate change, but I think uh, more arms control issues than are realized. Of course, nuclear arms matter, but, you know, bioweapons, that's a very challenging issue. I mean, like, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, talk about, a, a, you know, the lab leak and and may have been a lab leak, but like imagine, I mean, this should make you concerned about it being an intentional deployment of a biological weapon, even by some terrorist group or something. I mean, there, there, there's, uh, you know, there, there's weapons in space. Uh, there's, there's various um, challenges. I mean, I, like cyber war, there's, there are a lot of things where life would be easier if there were norms, if not laws, and in some cases, laws, maybe international laws, I mean, uh, that allowed nations to to feel more secure that other nations weren't doing these horrible things and you didn't have to worry about them. Um, is that is that kind of does that kind of argument get any traction in Silicon Valley? I mean, there's a lot of thinking in Silicon Valley about technology in the future, but it tends to be like really sci fi, right? Like. Uh, what if what if the AI turns on us? Well, okay, there's that, but there's also like, should we worry? And I don't know what the answer is, but should we worry about a kind of arms race in AI or AI uh, weapons or something between nations? I don't know what the answer is, but I don't hear much discussion of that kind of thing. Is this? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, listen, I think I think in Silicon Valley, the beginning and end of the story with Ukraine is that the Russians invaded. That's all there is to it. They're the invader. They're you know they're inflicting all this mm -hmm. uh, carnage, and I think the issue is is that simple. I mean, you already have I think a tendency on the part of Silicon Valley to always embrace the current thing, and there's a crusader mentality to Silicon Valley, um, but only in certain approved ways. So you know I think that what we see with the whole 
woke issue, the censorship by social networks. I mean, there is a strong crusader impulse, um, but only towards the establishment approved things. Mm. And, um, you know, I just think that they, they see the Ukraine war in just a very simple, uh, very simple way. And, and they, is there much concern about the consequences of a cold war, both with Russia and China? Apparently not for the reasons I just spelled out, judging by your reaction. But I mean, what is the... Yeah, I mean, certainly, well, the, the realists, I think, have pointed out that why are we driving the Russians into, the, into China's arms? This is just a foolish policy. If you just look at it in terms of real politique, I mean, throughout the Cold War, our goal was always to have Russia and China each like us better than they liked each other. So we can sort of, you know, you know, divide at impera, I mean, divide and rule. Um, but we've kind of moved away from that. We've kind of driven the the Russians right into China's arms. But, you know, again, that's a realist consideration. Mm. I don't hear people in Silicon Valley making that argument. I do think that there are people in Silicon Valley who would make uh, more of a dovish argument with respect to China. Uh, no one's making it with respect to Russia, okay? Mm -hmm. But with respect to China, I think you'll hear a decent amount of that uh, because I think there's quite a bit of um, business interests on the part of tech companies or tech investors in, in China. And they see trade as kind of an unalloyed good. And um, they, would, they basically believe in um, you know, economic inter interdependence theory or something like that and mm -hmm. believe that um, maintaining you know, trade relations with China and so forth helps mm -hmm. promote peace. So I think there you would hear more dovish things, but um, not, not on Ukraine, I don't think. And as for the larger issue of kind of transnational problems that are best solved through international cooperation, is it pretty much just climate change, climate change, climate change in Silicon Valley and not? Yeah, you don't hear much anymore about, um, you know, about nukes. Um, you know, climate change, let, let alone bioweapons or a cyber war treaty or anything like crazy like that. Yeah, I mean, you don't hear much about arms control agreements or anything like that. I mean, mm -hmm. the um, you know, all, all you hear in the press about that is well, the Russians were cheating, so we had to you know abrogate all those agreements, throw them out. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but um, so yeah, you just don't hear much. You know, the classic um, anti-war left, I would say, um, that um, was was sort of. Cons concerned about these things, just I think it's like disappeared. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of commentators who've pointed this out. I mean, folks like Len Greenwald and, you know, Matt Taibbi and Aaron Matei at the Gray Zone. I mean, you know, again, kind of that, I don't want to paint too broad a brush, but sort of the, the descendants of Noam Chomsky, let's say. I mean, right. they sort of are bemoaning and regretting the fact that there's just no anti-war left anymore. Yeah, I mean... Uh... There's a little bit of one, but as you suggested earlier, I mean, it, it, you know, the anti-war sentiment tends to be identified with, uh, I guess, either what's left of the, uh, the, the hard left or kind of Buchananite uh, nationalist conservatism. There are some libertarian conservatives who are not nationalists, uh, who, like, I guess, Scott Horton, maybe, uh, who are very anti-war, uh, but... Um, I guess those are the options. And, and in your experience there, is that, are you, to the extent that you're seeing, uh, you know, views on Ukraine that are anything like yours, do they tend to be associated with one of those 
traditions. Um, I mean, I know those traditions aren't yeah. that robust in Silicon Valley to begin with. Now, Peter Thiel, whom we mentioned, who you know, is associated with the kind of nationalist conservative by virtue of his, his stuff with Trump. But yeah. um, I don't think anybody in Silicon Valley has read Pat Buchanan. <laughs> I just, you yeah. know, um, so it's, yeah, I don't, you know, now I, I do think that because the tech community is very international, it is internationally diverse. I do think that, and maybe this is where I get the positive comments in the message boards is that internationally, right. I think there's a lot of acceptance of my views. And so, you know, it, India, and you know, there's a lot of Indians in the tech community. I think they understand this. Um, Brazil, South Americans, I think that, you know, the whole global South basically, um, you know, isn't, let's put it this way. They're not automatically rushing to the U.S.'s side on this. Um, so I think that, and, and a lot of Europeans actually understand it too. You know, mm -hmm. I think a lot of Europeans understand that the U.S.'s role in all of this has been um, not to sort of tamp things down, but has been as a bit of a belligerent. So uh, I think that the there, there's a lot more um, interest in these views from the international part of the tech community. Mm -hmm. Now, have you run into accusations of being, you know, uh, a Putin sympathizer, Putin apologizer, uh, apologist, or, uh, you know, I, I guess the uh, the near cousin of those allegations is you're reciting Putin talking points. Um, yeah, I mean, all, all over Twitter, you know. Um, so, you know, and I've made it clear many times, I have no business interests in Russia. I have no Russian investors. I invest in American companies. Um, you know, I invest in Silicon Valley. The reason I have these views, I have no interest in them, no financial interest. I purely arrive at these views because this is what I believe based on having done the homework and researching the issue. Um, so yeah, you know, I get that kind of stuff on Twitter. And then the other thing you hear all the time is Neville Chamberlain. This is the only historical reference they apparently know is Munich, mm -hmm. 1938, Neville Chamberlain. Any attempt to, to use diplomacy to avoid a war, you know, you get accused of Neville Chamberlain. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the other thing. But, you know, a lot of it is, um, honestly, is um, pro-Ukraine partisans who are on uh, Twitter, you know, replying with all this stuff. And, um, you know, for all the um, conspiracy theories about uh, the Russian presence on social media and how they're secretly orchestrating things, I mean, I don't see much pro-Russian sentiment on social media. It's all, you know, you, the, the Ukrainian side is on social media. Yeah. And the Washington Post has done coverage on this. I mean, the uh, Ukrainian stratcom game, the strategic game is way better than the Russians. I mean, they are much better at the strategic communications piece of this. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been uh, vocal about kind of cancel culture deplatforming uh, but mainly in the context of domestic politics, you know, woke issues and so on. Um, have you run into this much or thought about it much more in the context of foreign policy? Um, you know, because being uh, labeled a Putin apologist or something, you know, it, it's an attempt. It's an attempt to stigmatize you and to start right. moving you in an informal way out of the discourse or push you to the margins of discourse. Um, have you seen examples of actual um, 
you know, people being deplatformed. I mean, I know, uh, I, 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 like Consortium News, a left-wing anti-war, uh, among other things, anti-war site, I think was deplatformed by your own modern PayPal or something um, mm -hmm. recently. I don't know whether that was over foreign policy per se, but uh, this kind of thing does does kind of happen. Are you have you been keeping track of that? Um, I mean, I see it on on Twitter. You know, I I see. Um... You know, some of the yeah, some of the um, critics uh, have been temporarily suspended. Uh, maybe there's been some YouTube bannings. Um, well, obviously, the the Russian state media was completely thrown off. You know, mm -hmm. all the RT videos and so forth were were banned. I don't really understand the point of that. I mean, don't right. we want to know what they're saying and what they're thinking? Um, and some you know, of those were Americans, yeah. like you know Chris Hedges, who mm -hmm. you know. Uh, yeah, he's far left. There, there are far left people in America, right. but, but the, he was the former, that was the former weapons inspector. Um, Ritter, sorry, was it Scott Ritter. Ritter? Yeah, wasn't he like kicked off for a brief minute? I think I he's think, back. I think he may have been. There's been a certain yeah. amount of that, and, and I think yeah. you mentioned uh, Aaron Mate, uh, and I think Gray Zone has run afoul of authorities. I mean, it's. Uh, you know, one of my frustrations, I guess, with uh, kind of the what used to be called the intellectual dark web before it kind of fractured over over COVID is that they're very kind of anti-deplatforming, but they don't not only do they not pay attention to these kinds of issues. I mean, sometimes they seem on the other side on these kinds of issues. An, ex an example uh, I recall is that I had, you know, on my podcast, I have a wide variety of people. I've had uh, hardcore Trump supporters, lots of neocons, lots of people on the far left. So I've had, you know, uh, Aaron Matte, Glenn Greenwald, Max Blumenthal, and a piece appeared. And, and, you know, some of these people get accused of being, you know, Assad apologists or whatever. Um, and a piece appeared taking me to task for having Max Blumenthal on my show. And the place the piece appeared was Quillette the uh, unofficial magazine of the intellectual dark web at that point, which was very anti-deplatforming in, in all contexts, apparently, uh, other than this one. So this is, I, I think there's more going on here than, than people think about. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of voices, I guess, mainly on the left, but in any event, kind of hardcore anti-war voices um, that run into this kind of trouble more than maybe we realize. You don't hear as much about it as you do about the woke issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. Um, I mean, I guess I'm I'm not totally tracking who's getting kicked off. Um, I mean, I do see posts about it. I, you know, I definitely think that this whole idea of labeling anybody who has a contrarian view about the war as being, you know, as, as spouting Putin talking points. Which, by the way, it was. Jen Psaki at the White House, who first said that in response to yeah. I think, so, some concern that was raised. Um, I mean, it is an attempt to, to shut down the debate. I mean, it is an attempt to stigmatize. And, and it goes back to the thing we talked about at the beginning, which is, I mean, there, there's this, I don't think there's a legitimate basis for it. But part of it is that, like we talked about, just because we understand that there's a richer prehistory to the conflict doesn't mean we're trying to excuse. Putin's illegal and immoral actions. Um, so let's just state that. But I, I really think that the reason why they try to label um, contrarian views this way 
is to basically to I mean to stigmatize them and basically end the debate. It's to and it's and I think it's to protect them from you know accusations of incompetence because I just think this war could have been so easily avoided. Mm. The uh, one more example of this actually that I just mm. remembered the uh, I heard this on the. Scott Horton podcast, this guy named Alan McLeod, and I guess he originally wrote this piece for Mint Press, but he sounded credible to me when I listened to him. And what what he said, it's a case of kind of foreign policy deplatforming. And he, what he said was, uh, you know, there were a bunch of uh, pro-Sandinista voices as the Nicaragua election was approaching on Facebook. And Facebook uh, kicked them all off and said they were bots. And then a bunch of, People showed up on Twitter with videos, Nicaraguans saying, I just got kicked off of Facebook and I'm not a bot. Here I am. And by his account, they were kicked off of Twitter. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if uh, I, I haven't tracked the story down. It sounded credible to me, but um, I guess that's the kind of thing I think doesn't get nearly as much attention as the kind of other kinds of deplatforming. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the degree of conformity and consensus around this issue is as strong as any issue. That I mean, I mm. think way stronger than COVID or the lab leak theory. Um, I mean, it's in folks like Glenn Greenwald have pointed this out. It's just, um, you know, it's the 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 sort of um, linking of arms between uh, all the establishment. Channels, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the, the prestige media, social networking. It is um, it's really breathtaking. So you've spoken favorably about people on the left, on the right, and so on. In, in, the, in the context of Ukraine, people who, not surprisingly, uh, agree with you, I guess. What is your own, and you don't have to answer this question. I don't want to probe any more deeply than you're comfortable with. But what is your own ideological orientation? I mean, you're definitely not like a far left guy, I gather, right? Yeah, I mean, well, on foreign policy, I just think we need to move in the direction of having a more restrained, realistic foreign policy. I uh -huh. mean, we were promised this peace dividend after the end of the Cold War. And what's happened? We've been in something like seven wars since the end of the Cold War. We just ended our longest war in Afghanistan. We were there for 20 years. Iraq, similarly, was a total failure. We squandered something like $6 trillion dollars in those two countries, um, we mentioned Syria, Libya. I mean, all these interventions backfired horribly. So it's time to take stock and reevaluate. And uh, I mean, gee, we've been out of war for a whole six months before this Ukraine situation came along. And um, so it's just, it's, um, it's amazing to me that there hasn't been more of a reevaluation of American foreign policy. And, you know, the last couple of presidents, I mean, both Trump and Obama said things when they were running for office that seemed to indicate that we were going to have a reevaluation of, of foreign policy, but we never quite did. And I um, mean, it's the same people, same establishment, same neocons who are still running the show. So I think on foreign policy, we just got to move to a more restrained foreign policy. I just think it's like so obvious. Um, I mean... I don't know how anyone can even debate this at this point. It's, it's really just a problem of we need a new establishment, basically, almost like a counter elite. Um, so that, mm -hmm. I mean, that's my view on, on foreign policy. I think on domestic policy, um, you know, I, 
it's um, the whole thing's gotten shaken up so much because so many of the views that I uh, hold used to be considered liberal views, and now they're kind of conservative. I mean, I've like always what's, been. What's a, an example? Of well, that? like free speech. I mean, I've, I've always been a free speech advocate. I'm against censorship. Um, I've spoken out against these social networks engaging in censorship. I've spoken out against the power of these tech monopolies. I think that they should be constrained. So these used to be liberal views, but now they're considered conservative views, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I still believe in the free enterprise system. So economically, I guess that makes me a conservative. I'm not, don't believe in socialism, obviously, as my profession probably indicate. Um, so, you know, I have a, a mix of views, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, until five minutes ago, I think my views would have been considered pretty centrist, but now I think they're somehow considered, you know, radical. far right or something. Yeah, radical. Well, <laughs> you mean, if you mean on, if you mean on Ukraine, they're far, far right or far left. I mean, I mean, that's where the, that's where people agree with you, right? Yeah. Uh, the, um. Yeah. And, and and back to Ukraine. So I guess you would say, is the big policy disagreement between you and the mainstream kind of like what we should be willing to do now to bring the war to an end? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I, I think the deal that we could have had a year ago is the deal that we're probably going to end up with. It's just the Russians are going to impose it by force. And what that deal basically looks like, I mean, it's, there's always been three pieces to this, and I think this has been well understood. Um, prong number one is that Ukraine is going to remain a neutral country. It's going to be sort of a buffer state. It's not going to be brought into the Western military alliance, into NATO. So that's prong number one. Prong number two is some resolution of this, uh, of, of the, the civil war that's been raging in the Donbass. You've got these Russian speakers, these ethnic Russians, who've been in a war against sort of the Ukrainian far right. And, um, you know, they were promised some sort of autonomy under the Minsk Accords that was never delivered on. And so now Russia, I think, will probably end up creating a protectorate there, or some sort of semi-autonomous state. And then the third piece of it is Crimea. I mean, I think that is a fait accompli. Again, Crimea is mainly a Russian area. Uh, the principle there does not should be appeasement. The principle can be self-determination. I think the vast majority of people living in Crimea want to be part of Russia. So I think that, you know, recognizing the Russian annexation of Crimea that happened in 2014, that's already a fait accompli. That's the third piece of it. So this is the deal that was on the table last year. I think it was still on the table at the beginning of the war. And, you know, our State Department had no interest in pursuing it. It was really bizarre to watch you had Macron and Naftali Bennett and Erdogan. They were all there as, you know, assuming this peacemaker role because our State Department had no interest in pursuing that kind of deal. And I think it's the deal that we're probably going to end up with at some point in the future imposed by force. Um, unless our efforts to arm the Ukrainians to dislodge the Russians from the eastern part of the country succeed. Um, which could itself lead to catastrophe. Which, yes, which could, which could, which then again puts us back in the nuclear escalation bucket. So, I, you know, th that to me is what we're headed towards: is the same deal we could have had a year ago, but worse, and the whole country is destroyed in the process. And I think that's the tragic thing. And I, I do think that historians who look back on this, um, you know, will will 
take our point of view. I mean, as you pointed out, I think in that piece that you wrote, why didn't we use diplomacy? The, the one back in, I think, February, mm-hmm. I think you said, like, if someone came from Mars and looked at this, or let's say a historian looks at this yeah. years from now, they're going to be like, wait a second, this was the key Russian concern, this was their key Russian demand, and no one seriously tried to use diplomacy to resolve it? I mean, it was it's just um, it's bizarre. Yeah. It's. I mean, what worries me is that we're not, uh, I think, unless we do push the Russians out, which could lead to catastrophe, I, I, I don't think we'll end up with anything nearly as good as what we could have had through diplomacy. I mean, through diplomacy, sure. I think we could have had and I admit it would have been a uh, it might have been a little bit of a push domestically for Biden to overcome the resistance of the blob. But he is the president. And I think if he had said, OK, they're not going to be in NATO, it's effectively a neutral country and we will abide by the Minsk Accords, which means giving this autonomy within Ukraine to these right. two provinces in the Donbass. I think that probably would have done it. And that is going to be so much better, I think, than what we wind up, because yes. what we're going to wind up with probably is rewarding Russian aggression. I mean, they're going right. to wind up in control of Ukrainian territory, you know, beyond Crimea, the, which is a 2014 issue. Uh, and uh, I, I, that's something I regret deeply. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big evangelizer for international law. And so I hate to see it happen. But I think through a failure of diplomacy, we've made it hard to wind up with a situation better than that. No, I think that's right. Um... I think that I think that's right. I mean, I think we end up with a much worse deal. Um, you know, uh, the eastern part of the country probably gets severed. All, well, first of all, we're never going to recognize it, so we'll probably end up with some sort of frozen conflict in which we kind of have this de facto situation where the eastern part of the country either I don't know if it gets absorbed into Russia or just becomes some sort of protectorate, but basically it gets. You know, it'll be severed from Ukraine. It'll be severed. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, like you said before, under the Minsk Accords, if the Ukrainians had implemented that, those territories, you know, Donetsk and Luhansk still would have been part of Ukraine. They just would have had more, a little bit more local autonomy for the the Russian speakers there. Um, So, um, yeah. And, you know, of course, the whole country has been destroyed in the process. The economy has been destroyed. Um, So it's, uh, yeah, it's a a much worse outcome for, for everyone. So, and, and by the way, I think it's going to tank Biden's presidency as well. Um, you know, this is another uh, part of the whole thing is that, uh, like we talked about, I, I don't think the inflation started with Ukraine. It started last summer, but uh, there's no question that the fuel, uh, the energy and food inflation is exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We still haven't even necessarily gotten to, uh, the, we haven't gotten to the winter yet. So we don't know what's going to happen once Europeans need to heat their homes and we get this famine that's been long awaited. So the repercussions are still in the process of happening and are probably going to keep getting worse, not better. Um, And, you know, Biden made this decision in the first few months of his presidency to basically have this this policy. You know, Jeffrey Sachs, the international economist, um, one of the things he mentioned is that Biden pulled his cabinet very early on and asked, should we negotiate with the Russians? Should we use diplomacy to resolve this Ukraine situation? Of course, every member of the cabinet told the boss what he wanted to hear, which is no, we can never, you know, we can never compromise. Peace, yes, exactly. And so that was it. That was it. And and that's why I think, you know, Blinken was given his marching orders and that's why he was making these, you know, very dogmatic, um, uncompromising statements. And that was pretty much the end of it. And I don't even think Biden realized 
that that was pretty much tanking his presidency um, because it did contribute to this inflation problem. Um, and of course, you know, there was no grand strategy. I mean, even if your goal here was to take this tough on Russia, tough on Putin position, you'd want to prepare it by creating an energy glut. You'd want to create the conditions to reduce Putin's leverage. And what did Biden do? He canceled our energy independence first day in office, made it hard to drill. You know, um, so there was that. Then he basically treated the Saudis as pariahs. That was his goal. Now he has to go hat in hand to the Saudis to go beg for forgiveness to try and get them to produce more oil. I mean, these policies are just contradictory. I mean, if you knew you're going to pursue a tough on Russia policy, you'd want to maximize domestic energy production. And the last thing you'd want to do is alienate the Saudis. So they didn't even prepare. You know, there was no coherence to their larger strategy. It's almost like the blob was just on autopilot. And I think the result that's, of it that's is... That's what the blob does. That's what the blob does. And I think the result is this is going to wreck Biden's presidency. Mm. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> now that we've solved that problem, do you, do you want to spend two minutes just uh, explaining crypto to me? You're a crypto uh, enthusiast, right? I don't, know if I'm an, I don't know if I'm an enthusiast. Um, I feel like it's something I have to know something about. It's something... I invested in early. Um, you know, crypto is not one thing. It's a few different things. I mm -hmm. mean, first of all, there's Bitcoin, which is a very ambitious attempt to create a non-fiat money. Mm -hmm. It's basically a currency that's backed by math and cryptography instead of, you know, a, a government dictate. And so the beauty of it is that it can't be debased. We, we know how many Bitcoin there are. There's always going to be 21 million. There can't be... If, this, if the technology mm -hmm. works uh, and there's never... A, uh, a Bitcoin that sort of gets counterfeited, so to speak, um, then we know how many Bitcoin there are. So that's the appeal of that. Um, it's sort of like sci-fi money in a way. So that's that's one piece of it. Then there's, um, the you know, the, the blockchain was kind of the critical enabling technology of Bitcoin. And so then the idea emerged, maybe we can run other applications on the, the, the blockchain. And so that's where you get like Ethereum and, you know, these smart contract platforms. And there's... Um, various Ethereum competitors out there. Mm. Um, and so, the, and then you've got the applications themselves that can run on these blockchains. And I think we're still in the process of figuring out what all those use cases, what all those applications may be. And there's been a lot of speculation, obviously. And uh, now the, the souffle has kind of, the, the bubble has come out of the balloon. And uh, we're still, I think, kind of waiting to see what the real world applications of this thing are going to be. And um, to go back to your, your, your point about me being an enthusiast, I, you know, it was something that I was, I was quite enthusiastic about Bitcoin um, you know, early in the 2010s. I think I first bought Bitcoin in 2011, something like that. Um, but the last few years, I, I have been concerned that the um, that the price action of crypto has sort of been decoupled from the level of progress in the space, as measured by real customers, real applications, real use cases, the things you know that I look at when I'm investing in B two B software, for example. And um, so I haven't really been investing much in crypto for the last uh, last few years. Okay. Well, it sounds like if I'm ever going to fully understand this, we'll have to have a second <laughs> conversation. So it is, uh, it is it is a rabbit hole, and there are uh, there are people who uh, understand it much better than I do. Um, 
In fact, you know, I, I, we made the decision a few years ago that, I mean, crypto is becoming such a rabbit hole that um, it's the kind of thing where if you're going to invest in crypto, you kind of need to do it full time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we made the decision, okay, that's not what we're going to do. Um, you know, I, I basically invest in, in B2B software, you know, SaaS, software as a service. Uh-huh. Um, it's kind of boring by comparison. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there, I could definitely recommend some folks for you, for you to talk to who, you know, can go very deep down the rabbit hole with you on crypto. Okay. I may, I may, I may take advantage of that offer. Meanwhile, um, thanks for taking the time. So yeah. people can find you on the all in podcast, uh, any, and what's your Twitter handle? Just David Sachs. Okay. Yes. And then I also have a, a platform that I was a co-founder and investor in called call in, which is basically a, it's a social audio platform where, you create a room, but the room is part of a pod. So it's, you can spin up a pod very, very easily. Huh. And um, some of the folks we've been talking about have shows on Colin, like Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, oh. Aaron, Aaron Matei, Michael Tracy, um, Brianna Joy Gray. They all, and there's a number of other folks who... Um, a lot of lefties really you're hanging out with, man. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, that's what I mean. I think there's a, a hidden side of you that you yourself have not explored. <laughs> Maybe we can put you in touch with your inner lefty. Yeah. Uh, but uh, okay, so that's called what, Colin? It's called Colin. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you know, it's it's sort of like uh, you know, it comes from the idea of a of a call-in show. Um, so you know, listeners can join the caller queue and ask the host a question, and um, you know, it's like Rush Limbaugh, Larry King, or something yeah. like that. Well, maybe I should check it out. Well, yeah. th- thank you. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll keep we'll keep working on the blob and see if we can make any progress. Uh, and and maybe checking down the road. Thanks a lot, David. Yeah, thank you.